we have this weird condition where we are catechizing kids, and to catechize means to mature the faith that's already there for a faith that doesn't even exist except right. just by their capacity of from baptism. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, an awesome new podcast, at least I think it's awesome, about evangelization and discipleship and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And uh, I, I am Dave Van Vickle. I'm coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Gomer Gormley. <laughs> In case anybody's wondering, Gomer uh, was named after a harlot from the Bible. It's well, true. he wasn't really, but that's his nickname. No, it, I was. That's where the nickname comes from. I yeah, was yeah. directly nicknamed after the prophet Hosea was commanded by God to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And my last name is Gormley. And I had a friend in high school, in Catholic school, who decided uh, he would give me that nickname. And then when I went to Franciscan people, there were a million Michaels, right. but only one Gomer. Right. So here's a funny story from this a couple weekends ago. Dr. Scott Hahn came to my parish and we had this big presenter series and all this stuff. And it was so funny because I walked up to him right before his talk began and I introduced myself. I was one of the people putting on the event. And he goes, Michael Gormley, do you still go by Gomer? <laughs> That's awesome. And I said, unfortunately for my mom, yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're in season one. Everything is focusing on evangelization. So what we want to do is talk about the power of the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it mean to proclaim it and all that good stuff? And I think me and David might might even argue a little bit today. I love might it. Even argue. You know, oh, this is an important, probably one of the most important topics that a modern day Catholic can talk about. Okay, because what we're going to be talking about is this fancy word that the church uses uh, called kerygma. The word kerygma, and it's it's a Greek word. It just basically means proclamation. It's a Greek word for proclamation, uh, and, and it's interesting. It, you know, one of the things about the church is we are really bad at context, at least for a long time. We've been really bad at context. When we're teaching, when we're catechizing, when we're evangelizing, we don't have a lot of context. And let me explain what I mean by that. We've all, all of us, We've all been watching, you know, at some point, some kind of a sporting event, or maybe you've been at an event and you've seen the one guy who's sitting there and he has a big poster or sign and it says John 316, the most famous Bible verse of all time, John 316. And you all know it, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Why does that guy have that sign? Why does that crazy guy show up to these football games and, and hold that sign? It is because that man believes that within that verse is contained the gospel message, the gospel message, right? That God loves you, has a plan for your life, and that you are in need of a Savior, and that that Savior is Jesus Christ, and that Jesus came to, to die for us, and that if we repent and turn to him, that we can be saved, that is an awesome context, right? That needs no context. It is what we call the great story, the kerygma, the, the great story of evangelization, the gospel message, the basic gospel message. So now when church nerds like Gomer and I use the word kerygma, what we're talking about is that basic gospel message, 
that God loves you, has a plan for your life, that because of sin we've been separated from him and that the only one who could save us is someone who could bridge that gap between God and man again, namely both God and man, Jesus Christ, who comes and saves us from our sins by dying on the cross and through our repentance and turning towards him, we gain life with him and we come back to life with him. And uh, by believing in this powerful, basic gospel message, life comes into our souls once again. And it is the, the great story and the context in which all of our Catholic faith has to be understood. You see, I think Gomer would agree with me in, in the sense that right now what we're seeing is a bit in our church is a bit of a kerygma crisis, a kerygma crisis, because throughout all of the church, we are baptizing, we are catechizing hundreds of thousands of people. And oftentimes we are really good at teaching them lists, right? As Catholics, we're good at teaching them uh, Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the Sacraments, the Apostles. We teach them lists. And most of those lists have to do with rules because our church does have a, lot, a, a very profound tradition of looking at the, at the scriptures and interpreting what God has given, right? The, the kind of the rule book for how man can be happy. And so it's hard because when you start to teach about rules— you can lose the context of the fact that it is within a loving relationship of God, right? And that those rules come from God's love for us, that he wants us to be at peace and, and living fully joyful because he knows, right? He created us. He knows how, how it works and how we are to return to him. And so oftentimes, right, we can get lost in these rules. We become like the church of no, when in all actuality, these rules uh, are there just to help us to respond more fully and to a better yes, not the church of no, but to a more surrendered yes to God. And the way that that context can be reclaimed is by a constant and thought out and very, very uh, committed proclamation of the basic gospel message. It is the context in which our entire faith lies. What you'll see um, is that oftentimes this can be uncomfortable for church workers and even for priests, uh, that it's hard to, to preach this message over and over and over again if we haven't wrestled with it ourselves. And so we're going to dedicate this episode into talking about what, what is the gospel? What is it? Uh, what is this kerygma uh, that we're talking about, this basic gospel message? Why is it so powerful? And how do we uh, both wrestle with it ourselves, come to grips with the grip, the basic gospel message, and to really let it sink into our lives. How do we build a, charisma, a charismatic spirituality? How do we build charismatic preaching? How do we use the charisma uh, uh, to, to help us to be better evangelists? And really, how do we let the charisma use us to be better evangelists? Whoa. You unloaded with both barrels, bro. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. That was awesome. Well, I, because of the aggression of the kerygma, I felt like coming at you <laughs> aggressively. One of the great poverties of the Catholic Church today is its inability to synthesize all of the information we give kids into one organic whole. Right. Uh, kids don't often understand what the church calls the hierarchy of truths. And it's not like little kids need to understand that. But when you're raising Catholics, for many of them, as, as the great Frank Sheed, great apologist and uh, intellectual once said, um, 
everything just kind of is on the same level. Like you got Our Lady of Fatima, the Trinity, the Eucharist. Sure. You know, Holy Obligation or Holy Days of Obligation. You got all this stuff that's just kind of thrown around everywhere without an organizing principle. And he gave this wonderful talk to an Irish teaching order of nuns. Um, and the name of his talk was called, Are We Really Teaching Religion? And I had to give a paper, a response paper on it in college. And I wrote, and the title was, Am I Really Writing a Paper? <laughs> you think you think you're so funny. You think you're so funny. I got five points off for being cocky. Um, I would have given you 10 points off. <laughs> and I deserved it. Oh, young Gomer was a moron. Um, and so <laughs> one of the things that he says is he goes, here's the principle that kind of helps us organize this. The union of man with God in Christ Jesus. Yep. And he says, when you take that simple thing, you break it down. What is this union? Who is man? Who is God? And what did Christ Jesus do to unite man to God in himself? And this, once you begin to see this, you can then understand things as, as crazy as the code of canon law right. and the papacy to things like proclaiming the gospel. And when you look at the writings of Pope John Paul II, especially this one document that I read, Typically, at the beginning of every new school year for me as a uh, as a suburban parish, everything revolves around the school. And so every August or September, I bust out Catechesi Tridendi on Catechesis in Our Time from Pope John Paul II. And he has these two paragraphs, 19 and 20, that are so critical. But in it, he essentially says that we have this weird condition where we are catechizing kids, and to catechize means to mature the faith that's already there for a faith that doesn't even exists, exist right. except just by their capacity of from baptism. And so here we are. We have these essentially what Pope Benedict called baptized pagans. We have people who have no idea who Christ is, do not have a living and vital relationship with him, and we're trying to teach them how to live the Christian life without giving them the power of God for salvation, without giving them right. the Christian life. And so they don't have faith. And the author of Hebrews was clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Yeah. St. James said um, faith without works is dead. But we need to understand that faith is the groundwork of the Christian life. Right. Without the foundation, there is nothing to be built upon it. And so you baptize the person, right. and then we never propose to them this kerygma, the basic gospel message. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, it's just so they can understand the gravity of this situation, right? Uh, St. Thomas, you know, he would talk about this idea of latent grace, right? That faith is kind of a grace activator, uh, that when we believe in Jesus Christ, uh, that that is what, you know, that is what makes the sacraments really work as far as the grace communicated to us. We have to actually believe right in this. And so think about what's happening if we don't give people a chance to believe in the gospel and to, to, to experience the power of the gospel, then we're baptizing them, giving them first reconciliation, communion marriages that aren't receiving sacramental grace, all these different things, because they haven't entered into a life of faith where the, the grace that, that is waiting for them, right? Our church is just full of Jesus, that Jesus is just waiting for them. And, and that belief is what activates that grace inside of these people. So uh, imagine, uh, you know, imagine just having a car that would be amazing working, but you have to put the gas in it, right? The kerygma is the fuel. It's the fire and it's what makes it work. Uh, none of this is going to work. 
and all of our programs, processes, plans for catechizing the youth, challenging the next generation, none of it works if we do not give them the basic gospel message. So much of what we do in the Catholic Church is just push people along like, do they know enough about God? Do they know enough about the church? Do they know enough about this? And there's no enough about, yeah. but without the charisma, it's not organized together. It's not, it, it makes no sense ultimately. Right, right. And so part of giving people the good, rich, solid catechesis that a lot of like hardcore Catholics love is about the organizing principle at the center of it all has to be Jesus Christ and our ability to be in communion with him. And when we remove that, we remove everything. The whole thing falls. Right, right. I think of it in terms as a parish employee, and I propose the gospel over and over and over and over again. Every single time I'm in front of a crowd, that's what I do. And so one of the things that I, I do before I get up in front of a crowd of baptized Catholics is I pray to Christ and I say, Lord Jesus, your spirit dwells in them by virtue of their baptism and maybe nothing else. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> so you already are behind enemy lines. You've already infiltrated the human heart. Right. Now help me, Lord, to reach out and stir up into, fame, into flame the gift of God that's already within them. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, as you say that about the enemy lines, okay? And I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I, ha I have learned about the charisma basically because of that, right? Uh, you know, people, a lot of the people that I work with, a lot of the people that I, I meet with are people who are suffering from severe, severe, what we would call spiritual disturbances or, you know, that they're under attack by evil. And it's amazing to me because you can have a normal conversation with a person and, and, and nothing kind of nothing's really affecting this person. But if you tell them the basic gospel message, oftentimes that is enough to heal all that ills them. Right. What you see is in these people who are suffering enormously, maybe because of a mistake they made in the past or because of, you know, dabbling around in occult activity or something like that, uh, that the. The basic gospel message, right? God loves you, has a plan for your life, died for your sins, and all you have to do is repent and have have this beautiful relationship with him. Oftentimes, that is the most powerful key to helping these people. Yeah. And it's it's incredible to watch, right? How the the charisma is is an aggressive thing. And I, you know, one of my very favorite authors in in the whole world, his name is well, I I I'm gonna butcher his name, so I feel bad, but I think it, his name is Erasimo. Leiva Mary Kakis. I think that's his name. That's, that's, that, that's at least how it spells. Um, Spoken and, like and, a native. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And he, he's this like amazing uh, scripture scholar. Actually, he's a language scholar. And he talks about the word kerygma, how it means proclamation, but that one of the more familiar ways the ancient world would understand uh, the word kerygma is because of um, in ancient Rome, it was common, right, for uh, a charisma to be proclaimed when they would conquer another city-state or territory, right? That they would conquer, they'd win this battle, and then a charisma would be proclaimed. Um, uh, a good news would be proclaimed that saying that basically that, look, good news, Rome has come to help you and, and good news to the Romans, we've won another battle, right? This is an aggressive thing. And, and in a lot of ways, we can look at proclaiming the charisma and evangelization 
as an, an act of aggression, yeah. right? An act of aggression that God is bursting forth into enemy territory. Yeah. So think about that in terms of ancient Rome and how subversive people like St. Paul sure. were by taking right. the language of the imperial Romanum, right? And, yeah. uh, and twisting it for the gospel. So Caesar goes through his armies, his legions, you know, wipe out an opposing army. And then he commissions heralds to go into the highways and the byways and the rural surrounding areas and to proclaim the good news, the the Evangelion, right? The good news that Caesar is now their Lord. He is now their king over them. Isn't that great news? And St. Paul is saying, you know, in his letter to the Romans and other places, right, that Christ is the king and our purpose of the gospel is to announce the victory especially by his resurrection, the victory of Jesus Christ, the king, the new king in their lives. So this is the real good news. Better news. (laughs) And to use the very language that the Roman Empire used to talk about its military conquests and domination over people, St. Paul subverted and used to proclaim the spiritual liberty of God's people. And the interesting thing is the fastest growing cult or religion in the ancient world at the time of St. Paul was the cult of the emperor. Yeah. And so you have all these people, like literally their coin said, Caesar Augustus, the son of God. And all this, can you imagine Jesus holding that coin and being like, eh, right? Yeah, right. But, <laughs> so you have this whole thing going on. That's why a, a city like Philippi renames itself right. Caesarea right. Philippi to honor Caesar. And you have that happen in multiple places. All these new colonies and new new countries grafted in the empire wanted to prove their allegiance. So a little statue of Caesar would come around. And you would take a pinch of incense, throw it on the coals in front of Caesar, and you would say in Greek, Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. And that's why the powerful statement, the very first creed, scholars think, of the Christian church was... Uh, Yesu right. Curios, Jesus Lord. is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so now imagine that, right? And now today, you come to today where we don't have true political oppression in America. We don't have people murdering us and feeding us to lions. And yet we are terrified to proclaim the good news yeah. to our friends and neighbors and coworkers that Christ is their king and he conquered the very enemies that are destroying their lives. Absolutely, Gomer. I'm I'm thinking that for a lot of people listening, right, that um we should we should go ahead and and give them the steps of the charisma. And I'm I'm wondering why don't you give why don't you give the basic gospel message in in, in these steps so that uh you know if people are out there and you're gonna take notes, this is when you're gonna want to take them because Gomer is a brilliant cur- communicator of the charisma. So whenever we uh, and it's true whenever <laughs> we talk kind of. about the charisma, the first step is always on God. All right, so this is, so you can look at it from the perspective of Genesis, creation, that God desires union with you, okay? God desires union with you, and that union is the divine grace in your life, right? So if you look at it from a Genesis or global human perspective, we received that divine grace, we were a part of God's family, and we chose to walk away. Now, you might get fussy at blaming someone named Adam or Eve or whatever, or primal parents in the original fall, 
But the idea is you and I choose to walk away from God every day in our own sins. So the kerygma is not just about look at the goodness of God and the desires he has for us to be united to us. It's also about putting that lens on ourselves and how we so often reject God's fatherhood over us. And so ultimately, we have the love of Jesus Christ entering into our world, right? So historically, 2,000 years ago, the son of Abraham, the son of David, right, a, a, a Jewish man born of the Jewish people actually is the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ. He enters the world to overcome our sinfulness, the enemy of darkness, the domain of the devil and demonic oppression and all of that, Jesus enters into the midst. He proclaims the kingdom. And this is something that I think as Catholics, even though it's in our catechism, we kind of lose sight of, that Jesus came to give us a new reality, a new way of life, a new way of being in the world, but no longer of or bound by this world. And so the proclamation of the kingdom goes forth. The king then conquers sin and death and darkness by his death on the cross and his resurrection. You got to have those two. And then sends us his spirit so that we can be truly united to the Father in communion with God forever. Now, when you can break it down into the simple, what they call the four spiritual laws, it's a kind of a more modern American way. It was started in the 1940s or 50s, but a way of presenting the gospel in a simple God loves you, has a plan for your life. Uh, sin interrupts that plan and separates you from God. Jesus Christ died and rose so that you could have forgiveness of your sins and be united to God in heaven. And then the fourth is through faith and his church, you can be united to God forever. Now, uh, one of the things that I think so many people leave out, or I, I should say two other things, is the notion of Jesus proclaiming the kingdom and, and, that need for repentance of our sins. What do you think about that, Dave? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I always left out the proclamation of the kingdom. I did uh, for a long, long time because, because uh, you know, for a long time I didn't know how to make that transition from kingdom to church, and that was hard. And and I realized, you know, what you what you don't do in the beginning, you make up for later. You know, so it's always best to to re well, it's always best to let the kerygma be the guide right to let jesus's life be the guide yeah. and jesus was proclaiming a kingdom so why why leave that out uh there's no question about that and i think i think the repentance part i think it's just hard for people modern man does not like the idea of sin so i think i and i you know most priests don't like the idea of well i shouldn't say that but a lot of priests do not like the idea of preaching about sin anymore and so we don't hear about it a lot so the repentance part is is hard you know yeah because it is the most difficult part of the of the kerygma to hear you know yeah absolutely and so i i have two kind of things about repentance that i think are huge so one day this priest had come to me and he had me and him were talking we were at an event for parishes studying evangelization, all this stuff. And he said, you know, Mike, I've I've been proclaiming the kerygma and people aren't responding. Like Sherry Waddell in Forming Intentional Disciples said, there's no miraculous, oh. you know, recovery and conversion. And I said, okay, well, what are you saying? And he goes, well, you know, like I tell them that God is love and that God loves them. And I don't talk about God being judgmental and making them feel guilty all the time. And I try to, and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. Do you ever preach repentance? Do you ever invite them into repentance? 
And I said, do you ever challenge them, like list sins and say, are you ready to give these right. up? Are you ready to walk away? And he looked at me and he got stone silent, like, like blood gone from face, mouth pressed closed. And he goes, I have never done that in 20 years of being a priest. Like for most of us Catholics, we think repentance is the thing you do in the confessional. We don't realize that in the catechism, it's repentance, inward sorrow over our sins that sends us to right. the confessional. It's not a thing we do right. in confession, right? It's or, or our 15 minutes after confession, we do our penance. It's that interior sorrow for having offended our father, right? So this notion of helping people into repentance needs to be key. In fact, I actually create an entire parish mission where I help people identify what is the number one thing in their life that they have to get rid of, that they have to yeah. bring God's grace and repent of. And um, and to help people do that helps them admit the wrong they've done that maybe they don't even want to admit it. And then the other thing is, and this is huge, modern man doesn't believe in right. sin. Right. <laughs> modern man believes in other people's sins. Modern man believes in structures or institutional sin. Psych psychology. Right. And Yeah, and we psychoanalyze away our own culpability or guilt. And I, I, I find this so true. More conservative areas, like here I am down in, in the South, Christendom kind of is still alive and well. Uh, you know, you're, you're considered a respectable person if you go to church and read your Bible, not so much in the progressive, you know, Pacific Northwest. And so when I was in Seattle, I was doing a, uh, a talk on the kerygma and the way I do it when I'm with people who I think might not understand personal sin, as I start with the Samaritan woman at the well, because so much of her life, if you kind of listen to some biblical scholars in John chapter four, there's a story of the Samaritan woman at the well that she's suffering from various social dimensions of sin. So she's a, a, a the the Jews are hate the Samaritans and the Samaritans hate the Jews. So there's a kind of like this racial tendency, uh, you know, corruption there. And then this woman goes to get water for the day's chores at noon, not at six a.m. with the other women. Why? Right. Well. There's some ostrac uh, there's some shame and she's being ostracized and all this stuff. So you begin to see into this and see into it even more as the story unfolds, where you find out that she's having a weird living right. arrangement marital situation. Uh, Jesus says you have had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. So it kind of it gives you this like she is way outside the norm of customary right. social practice at that time. So then so then you have this, this feeling from the people listening, like here is the hero Christ coming to this woman in the midst of all this shame and social sin and structures of evil oppressing her, and he liberates her, but the way he liberates her is to get her to turn personally from her sin. Right, And so then she becomes an evangelist and come meet this man who showed me all that I've ever done and all of this stuff. It totally changes in her life. So you use the social sin then in order to be build that bridge to the individual sin. Yeah, yeah. So that people can repent. So that if they trust Jesus, they'll say, why would I hold this stuff back? He's the only person who if I tell the worst part about myself, he won't right. hold it against right. me. Amen. So uh, what we want to do is uh, we want to make sure, again, like we promised at the very first episode, we're going to give you all kinds of practical, practical tips of things that you can do 
immediately to start evangelizing, to start proclaiming the kingdom. And so since we're talking about the charisma today, we have five practical tips that we're going to give you that you can do today uh, to help you enter into that charisma and to start proclaiming it and using and allowing the charisma to form your life and form your evangelization. Uh, you ready, Mike? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. You're always ready. Hey, you know, we didn't we didn't argue. I thought we'd argue a little bit, but we didn't argue. That's good. That's good. Well, okay, I mean, so we'll, here's fi- my- we'll find things because we'll find things because you just you'll find things. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I'm nitpicking. Okay, so number one, number one, this is advice I give to people all of the Constantly. time. If yeah, if you are RCI, all of this stuff, people, I tell them all the time. If you do not have a vital relationship with Christ, start with Mark's gospel. Read it as straight through as you possibly can. Wake up an hour early, get yourself some extra large coffee, and read Mark's gospel. It's the shortest of them all. And just ask yourself this one question as you're going through it. What do the words and deeds of Jesus reveal to me about God the Father's heart? Right? So Jesus says a bunch of stuff, does a bunch of stuff, but what does that reveal to me about God? Right. Okay? And when you do, you'll find that even when Jesus Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees when he's healing, when he's eating food with outcast people, you'll sit there and say, wow, this shows me something powerful about God the Father. Amen. Amen. So number one, read Mark's gospel in one sitting. Number two, uh, you know, we talked about the kerygma throughout the book of Acts. There are eight different charismatic sermons, right, that the apostles give. And uh, they are basic examples of this message, this basic gospel message. And what we want you to do is prayerfully to take one of them and meditate on them. And so we're going to just go with the first one. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36, right? And it's Peter's first charismatic proclamation, right? And it's a dramatic story. So what we're going to have you do is just go through Acts 2, again, 14 through 36, Acts 2, 14 through 36, and meditate on the charisma and let let Peter proclaim it to you. Let Peter proclaim this basic gospel message to you and to prayerfully work through it. Each line, take a look at what it means to you, what you're feeling. Maybe think about the time you first heard it, all these kinds of things, right? You, you know how to you know how to do this. You you just sit with the Lord and let him speak to your heart through this initial proclamation from Peter. Yeah, so you see what we're doing. We don't want you to just go out there. Here's how you talk and change a conversation to be about yeah, don't Jesus. Don't do that. What don't we that. want to do is ground it in the person of Christ and spirituality. So number three, write down in your own words the basic gospel message. The four spiritual laws is great, adding the kingdom part, focusing on repentance. What stood out to you the most? And really just write it down and express it to yourself, okay? Write down the basic gospel message. Very simple. Could take you, you know, half an hour to get the words on paper, but have that, have that be a starting point. Boom. Number four, we're going to step out of the boat here. Okay. We're going to get into the the things that Catholics are afraid to do. There we go. What we, yeah, what we want you to do is, is this. Okay. It's simple. We want you to intentionally go and ask someone if they have some need in their life that you can pray for, okay? And now this isn't just arbitrary, okay? Prayer is is real. It's it God wants us to cooperate through intercessory prayer in his plan. And so what we're doing here is we're breaking the ice here. 
and we're asking you to get out of your comfort zone. So what you could say is just maybe to a friend, a coworker, a family member who you've, you know, probably, probably haven't said this to before and just say to them, is there anything I can pray for? Uh, in your life, anything going on that you'd like me to pray for. And, and if you if you feel bold enough, go ahead and pray for it right then. If you feel bold enough, go ahead and pray for it right then. If this is a massive stretch for you, then just say, okay, I'm going to pray for it. And you can go back and, and pray alone in your room. But if you feel bold enough, you feel that push, go ahead right then and there. Uh, to lead them in prayer and pray for that that particular uh, that particular uh, petition. Right, I love that getting out of the boat. So getting out of the boat. Now this part is kind of a community takeaway. Um, do you have non-believers who are friends? The funny thing is, the more people are in church world, the less they have non-church world friends. Just natural, you know. So what I would say is this: invite. Start to build a relationship with a non-believer by inviting them to do something that's mutually enjoyable, right? Invite a non-believer to a movie or play bridge if you like bridge or go golfing or something like that. The idea is you're forming relationships, not just so that you can evangelize them. The reality is being in a relationship with a Christian should be evangelizing, right? So the right there at the, at the heart of it, it's just invite someone who maybe doesn't have a strong relationship with Christ to something that's an activity that you share. Love your neighbor as yourself, full stop, right? So start there with that community. So yeah, so number five, Gomer basically said, get a time machine and go back and invite someone to play bridge. Old people do, and old people might listen to this. Ancient people, you just you just age yourself like fifty years. Ancient people are still bridge. alive. They are called baby boomers. I don't even I don't even know what you play bridge with. Is it cards? It's a Is card it game. Dom- oh, okay. I didn't know that. I don't even uh, know. Every baby boomer listening to this, I want you to write David and say, <laughs> Bridge is a time honored. Oh, please. <laughs> Please don't do that. Bridge and Canasta. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we have just spent the last 40 minutes or so talking about the basic gospel message. It it is what changed my life. It is what changed Gomer's life. It is the power of God for salvation. It is what that crazy guy at the football game has on his sign, John 3.16, proclaiming that God loves you and has a plan for you and that sin has separated us from him. And through his death on the cross... He has reunited man to himself, and through our repentance, we we cooperate with God's grace and, and can have that relationship, and that he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us, and this message gives context to life, to everything. This is what makes life meaningful. So we hope that you've uh, learned something and that you've enjoyed. Please try those five practical tips. Those are things that are really going to help you. Again, Gomer and I have been doing this for a long, long time. We wouldn't just give you busy work. These are things that we wish we would have learned at the beginning. uh, So we wouldn't have made so many mistakes, or at least I wouldn't have made so many mistakes. Gomer, want to sign us out? Guys, we want to hear from you. Email us your questions, feedback, stories at every knee shall bow at ascensionpress.com. That's every knee shall bow at ascensionpress.com. God bless y'all.